Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Purple House Cancer Support Centre is Ireland's first community based cancer support centre, founded in 1990 by Veronica O'Leary after her own cancer experience made her realise that while she had received excellent medical care, there wasn't much available by way of support for patients and their families at that time to come to terms with the diagnosis and the recovery. I went to Bray in County Wicklow to find out more about the work that they do with what they set up. Breathwork expert and Wim Hof practitioner Neil O'Muraku has been a regular on this show and today he is back to talk about a personal journey involving his twin daughters which led him to retrain in breathwork for trauma and anxiety in children and teenagers. And Neve Malone had experienced social anxiety for as long as she can remember. When she found herself recovering from a stroke and faced with even more challenges, she decided to set up an online platform to help people navigate common situations which can cause an issue and she urges family and friends to just listen. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, something small yet monumental started this week. I got the bus to work. I have been toying with the idea for some time, but I'd been put off mainly because... A few years ago, I was returning to work after my second maternity leave and I decided then that the bus would be a good idea. But it was 15 minutes walk to the bus stop and back. Then the bus journey took a good hour. So you're factoring in a round trip of three hours all in, which on top of a workday when I was paying a childminder was just too much when I got to drive in and out in literally half the time. Now, my kids were very young at that time. I was in that real juggle where when you're at work you feel you should be at home and when you're at home you feel you should be at work and I just wanted to get home as soon as I possibly could so the bus idea was shelved and I'm giving you this detail because somehow I got stuck there I had decided from that moment on I'm not the type of person who gets the bus to work I just can't it doesn't suit my situation But that was probably five years ago I mean since then I've changed jobs we've moved house We're on a different bus route. My kids are older. They're more independent. My husband works from home now, so we don't have a childminder. But I was still carrying the label that getting the bus to work was just not for me. And I had a guest on my Changemakers podcast recently, Dr. Owen Gallivan, talking about the psychology behind why we know things like climate change is a big deal and that it requires action. But we just tend to push the thoughts aside, hoping that someone else will sort it out. It's just a very normal human reaction, a protective strategy, so to speak. But often it still bubbles around in the background anyway. Well, it does for me. And we also spoke about the impact that small changes can have and that they all amount to make a big difference. It's only a coffee cup, say, seven million people every day. So I've committed to making small changes. I don't get a coffee anymore unless I have my keep cup with me. I refill my plastic containers with cleaning and hand wash products where I can. If your local stores don't offer this service, ask them to consider it. I choose fruit and veg that isn't packaged. I bring my own bags for this. And now to that list, I can add, I get the bus. Now, I was mainly pushed, I'd have to admit, because there are so many changes going on in Dublin City and the surrounding areas. Positive ones now, like pedestrianised streets and the addition of cycle lanes, but they've been causing traffic chaos and you have to drive all around the world to get to your destination. So this forced my hand, which again is a good thing. I got the bus this week 
And I just don't know why it took me so long. Painless, easy and actually enjoyable. So I'm telling you this not for a medal, but because it really made me appreciate how we can get stuck in a story we've told ourselves about ourselves without checking in to see if it still holds true or appreciating that we can change. It's okay to change your mind about something. And you know what? You just might like it when you do. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, breathwork expert and Wim Hof practitioner Neil O'Muraku has been a regular on this show and today he's back to talk about a personal journey involving his twin daughters which led him to retrain in breathwork for trauma and anxiety in children and teenagers. Well, you're very welcome, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about when all of this started. Presumably your kids have been exposed to you and your wife jumping into ice baths in the garden and deep breathing. So there is a lot of talk around that, but still no one is safe from time to time from anxiety arriving into their home. Yeah, so we have four young children and the youngest two are identical twin girls and they're very brave, very courageous little women and they cycle off on their bikes, you know, miles from the house and come back again. Well, they used to before, um, before the lockdown started to open up again. So during lockdown, they were okay. And as lockdown opened up and they returned to school, they started to suffer really badly from anxiety over separation, anxiety about uh, Josie not being around, Josie being kidnapped, Josie being murdered. You know, these really very strong feelings of despair and not feeling safe. And it was a real surprise, you know, because they had been such courageous little uh, children beforehand. And I suppose it struck me one night... um, in bed, they were just terrified going to bed. And I thought to myself, you know, I teach people all over the world how to deal with stress and anxiety, adults mostly. But here I had the two most important people to me in in my house, under my roof, and they were suffering from this thing that I could help them with. But I had to go find some experts that could really guide me in the best way for children and teenagers to deal with it. And I certainly had a little bit in my own house with my kids who had never batted an eyelid over anything really Mm. barred the normal. There was something about the stress in the air, even though so many of us had quite nice family experiences through lockdown, nice weather, no work, no extracurricular activities, out for walks, always together. They still felt it. We thought they were shielded from it, but they they certainly felt it. No school, no nothing. It did have an impact, I think, on a lot of children. I suppose as adults, we have ways of reasoning our way through difficult situations or we have coping mechanisms. And I think for some of the children and teenagers, they don't have that context. You know, so during it, they're surviving and they're getting through it. But when it all opens up again, their bodies have contained and held those feelings of, of uncertainty and not feeling safe over the previous two years of listening to non-stop news about illness and death and, and isolation. And I think what we have as adults can help us. We can jump into an ice bath or the sea or go for a cycle. We can do something that helps us. But for the children, they might not have those things. So what I've found is, and having talked to and trained with uh, the two experts that you mentioned in the introduction, is that their their understanding is that the body holds on to these traumas and it don't, they don't often manifest for maybe two years after what's happened. So I think as a, as a nation, as a society, we're only starting to see the beginning of, of us trying to deal with the, the previous two years. 
Yeah, because the one thing we always say about kids is they love routine, they love stability. And that's what we all had to have taken away. So tell us about Professor Richard Brown and Patricia Gerberg. Where did you find them and, and what is their work? So as I was looking into this, I was searching for somebody who had evidence-based ways of using breathing to help children and teenagers specifically and, and adults as well. And I found a vague reference in a great book about breathing by James Nestor to these two professors. So I went out and found them and looked them up. And they're these amazing characters. They both they're both clinical psychiatrists. They're both um, professors in their different universities, Columbia University. And they are also the people who have looked at ancient ways of breathing, but they've brought them and tested them scientifically and, and honed them and changed them. And really, when I went to train with them, it's amazing. They have no social media presence. You know, they're really hard to find. They're just kind of academics. But they have taken these very simple ways of breathing, very simple ways of breathing and moving. And not only have they, you know, examined them and seen what works best, they have over the previous, the previous maybe 10 or 15 years been involved in some of the most you know, traumatic events in, in our history, such as the Haiti earthquake, Rwanda genocide, 9-11, and they've been brought in to help people deal with the trauma of those situations by using these ways of, of breathing. So when I found them, I, I was able to train with them online over the, over the past couple of years, and their approach is, is so brilliant, but so simple. You know, and, and it's something that I think we can all do, like it's very basic breathing. breathing. For example, breathing in for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four. It's called coherent breathing. It's just one way of doing it. And the results on the body are incredible. They bring the body into balance. They help us feel calm again. They help us feel safe again. And they're so simple that children and teenagers can do them without much thought. And why did you feel you needed that extra layer? Because you already had so much knowledge around the breath and getting into the central nervous system and reducing stress. And as you said, you've helped thousands of people with that. Why this time? Also, your your work with the, the Wim Hof method. Why did you feel you needed that extra layer this time? Well, I always feel that we can only take people as far as as deeply as we have gone ourselves. So as a person who tries to guide people, teach people, I'm also always the student. So I can only take people as deeply as I have gone myself. So I felt that my understanding of the breath has helped lots of people, but there's always more to learn. And by finding these two professors, you know, all of a sudden has opened up this whole new world of of, you know, effective breathing to me. And then it that then helps everyone that I, I come in contact with. So um, I'm always trying to learn. And I had a look on their website. And as you say, they've gone to some of the biggest catastrophes in the world. And to even know that's going on is really yeah. heartening. I mean, it's sad that these events happen in the first place. But to know there are eminent professors going in and even in Ukraine at the moment, they are offering free courses in Ukrainian. And of course, the breath is a universal language. They yeah. can go in anywhere to any third world country, teach the breath to help people get through some of the biggest challenges they may face. Yeah, what really hooked me was the fact that they had been to South Sudan. 
during the civil war. Now, I, ha- I by chance, had been to South Sudan about 10, 10 15 years ago in my previous life as a, as a person who worked for the charity Concern Worldwide. And I had seen firsthand these huge refugee camps full of hundreds of thousands of people trapped between these two warring armies. And when I saw that the professors had been there and had been able to help people who had been slaves for the previous 10 years and within half an hour able to help them change how they were feeling and and learn these ways of breathing that would help themselves and their communities, I thought to myself, oh, I have to, I have to find out more about this because I had seen what South Sudan was like and, to, and the idea that someone could come in and have an effect very quickly, but most importantly, that they could teach the local leaders how to do it and the local leaders then could teach their communities. Um, that was that was very important to me. Yeah, because it's not like a one hour workshop and then after that you go back to normal. You're giving people the skills to bring it into their own life and that's what you're involved in now and telling people that just 10 minutes a day can make a serious difference. And yeah. obviously people are going to say what's happening in South Sudan is very different to what our kids are going through or what we may be going through with normal work-life balance. But our body doesn't necessarily know that. Stress impacts the body and it doesn't know what's in front of us or what our life is going through and yet it still has such detrimental effects. Yeah, and if if these very simple techniques can work in South Sudan in the middle of this conflict with warring armies and people with no sense of safety at all, then they can definitely work with our children as well. And I think as you're saying there, our bodies react to stress as a reaction to what we feel is a challenge or danger, but that can be perceived danger as well. So it mightn't be an actual physical attack, but if we perceive danger, like if a child perceives the danger of not knowing where their mother might be or where their dad might be, the body reacts in the same way. Heart rate goes up. The body gets tense, their mind becomes anxious, focusing on the worst case scenario. So if we can help children and teenagers just to use their breath very simply and very calmly to unwind that sense of, of un, un, unsafety, unwind that sense of danger, then we have something that could really help everybody. So you started to use this knowledge, I assume, in your house first. When did you start to see an impact? So immediately I started using it with the children and very quickly started to see how their behaviour was changing. So it was like they were wound up, like they were like wound really tightly. And as we started to do the breathing every night, they began to unwind and their behaviour started to change. And at this stage, they were back in school and we could see changes in the brain. When we did the breathing every night before bed, the next day they felt better. But at the same time, loads of other people were also having similar experiences with their children and teenagers. So I was getting these emails from parents and teachers and organisations saying, look, can you do anything for these children and teenagers? So that gave me the idea that if I could do it for my own children and then if I could record the the, the ways of breathing that work best, I could make that available to more people. And that developed into a series of recordings that we then tested but very generously, a couple of schools got involved and teachers and they played them to their students and they would feed back on what worked and what didn't work. And we started to refine the recordings. And that's really the basis of what we have now, which is blissful breathing for children and teenagers. These are a series of recordings that we are constantly improving 
listening to what the children react to best, listening to what parents and teachers are saying. And for example, one of the things that really endeared me to the whole process was the children keep saying that they love birdsong. It makes them feel calm. So in the recordings, I have a great producer and he was introducing birdsong into it, you know, and, and it's small things like that that really are starting to have an effect. So my own children have benefited greatly for it, from it. But it's not only for them. It's for all the children, all the teenagers. And the key is that the parents are doing it with them. So the par- if a child is not feeling well or is feeling anxious, that has a knock-on effect on the parents as well. So we're getting the parents to, to do it with the children for a couple of reasons. One, children mimic their parents. So if the children see the parents doing it, they'll do it as well. But also it gives the parents a chance to unwind and find that little sense of calm as well. And I think what's important is that it's a consistent practice. And this is a message for for all of us. You hear about crisis meditation or crisis breathing. And obviously, if you are in a stressful situation, to stop and take a few deep breaths. I mean, only three breaths will start to slow everything down. So that is good in a crisis moment that you do it. But the more you do it on a consistent level, the less of a shockwave you'll get during those stressful times. Yeah, you're, you're right. So there's a practice of doing the breathing as a practice when, when everything is calm before they go to bed, taking a few minutes for everyone to do some breathing. But then that prepares them for, for whatever happens during the day. But then when the crisis happens, because we've been practicing it, then the body remembers, then the child remembers, then the teenager remembers. And we can then start to use the breathing in that moment of crisis. But to do that, we have to have practiced it beforehand to get the most out of it. Yeah, like with driving a car, you know, when you're learning, it's just so terrifying. And then all of a sudden you're pulling up into your driveway and you're like, geez, how did I get here? Or somebody pulls out and your body just reacts. And I suppose you're giving yourself those same reactions. Well, look, we've been doing it at home, myself and my kids. Um, I mean, people will know this is probably your fourth time on the show. I am a fan of yours and your work, but... I paid for this myself. You're not paying me. Um, And I just have found it huge, I have to say. Um, Just to get in in the evening, the kids hop into our big bed. My daughter's holding my hand. The two of us are breathing together for 10 minutes. It's been a real sense of connection for all of us. And you know how some nights with training or whatever else is going on, sometimes it can be a late night and my daughter will go, will we still have time for the breathing? (laughs) I'm like, yes, we will have time. And I want to talk about some of the things that have come up. One of the things that I think is really effective that people can nearly do now is when you take in a really deep breath and then you let it out in a sigh, there's something so Mm. powerful about that, isn't it? That ah, as if you're letting something go and you don't even have to have in your mind what that something is. But just even a few of those deep breaths and a big sigh has such an impact. Our bodies hold on to so much tension during the day, even if we don't, even if we're not conscious of it. We, we gather up tension on us like these layers of coats, coats, old coats. Imagine going around and putting on these old coats. That's the tension. And we, we kind of put one old coat on top of the other, on top of the other. And what we, when we breathe in like that and we just let go, we sigh. That's why we sigh during the day it's the body allowing itself to let go of these layers of tension these old coats of tension that we carry upon ourselves so even that very simple breathing in and letting go like a sigh 
has a huge effect on us. Now, we do it all the time without thinking about it. Think about the teenagers in your life or, you know, you ask them to do something and their eyes roll. So we, our bodies know how to do this. But when we do it consciously, then it has a deeper effect. So it's taking these things that our body does naturally and using them to our advantage, using them as our force for good in our lives. And you have a visualisation um, exercise and it's like blow your worries away and yeah. in it, you know, there's a, a colour you can picture, a shape. So you're putting that image on whatever worry you've asked that the child or whoever's doing it to conjure up. And that's really powerful, I'm sure, with children, visualisation. You yeah. know, it's too much for their heads to get around. What are you worrying about? And what are you thinking about? But you're just blowing it higher and higher and letting it go. I thought that was another huge and brilliant one. Yeah, so this is a combination of a few different techniques that came out of a crisis. So so, so my youngest daughter one night was terrified going to bed. So I was thinking to myself, running through all the different things that I'd learned over the last 20 years. So interioception is our sense of being able to feel what's going on inside the body. So when we can bring our attention to, say, the movement of the breath in the body, it starts to relax the body. Also, our ability to use our imagination to visualize something and feel that experience becomes what our body gets used. It becomes the reality. So I was lying beside our youngest daughter and interioception and this mental rehearsal, the two things combined in my mind. And I was thinking, if I can get the child to visualize the thing, the color, the shape of the thing they're worrying about, and then we can start to use the breath to feel that moving in the body and moving from the body and away from the body using this interioception, this internal perception, then we can help the child to release that. And that was the kind of, that was the, the crisis that brought that very specific recording about. And then we started to practice and then we started to record it and we, then we started to improve it. So these are, so yes, I went and learned a lot from Wim Hof and I went to learn a lot from these great professors and previously from Shaolin monks and all these different people. But some of these recordings are nearly like the combination of the last 20 years of experience coming out in just one, in one recording, taking bits of what I've learned and combining them in a new way. And it's always just to help that little child or that teenager in front of me. What kind of feedback have you had, not only from what you can see in your, your own home, but from some of the, the schools or, or parents and families that have used it? I, I love getting notes from parents about how their children are feeling after they do the breathing and the changes that they've seen and the students that they that they yeah, and the teachers talking about it for teachers and, and, and the parents. It's nearly always the same. There's just a sense of calm and stillness in the child that may not have been there before. And I think over a long term, when we ha take a little moment every day, and we find this sense of calm and control, that then builds. So I love getting messages from parents about that. That really makes, you know, inspires me to keep going and to, to improve what we're trying to do. Well, I didn't necessarily have what you had in your house, a real crisis moment of anxiety, but my kids do get that sort of schoolitis feeling, I call yeah. it, you know, the Glen Rowe music <laughs> feeling that we all used to get on a Sunday night. They get it every night before bed. And after the breathing, they say, it's OK, I feel better. And even that they have that tool to move into adulthood, that they know if they're feeling funny, 
there is something they can do to make themselves feel better. I think that's absolutely priceless. So thank you for putting this body of work together. If you want to find out more, you can go to breathewithneil.com. It's spelt Nile. It's just another layer to this man. Breathewithneil.com forward slash children. Um, Neil Omuraku, thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Now, Purple House Cancer Support Centre is Ireland's first community-based cancer support centre. It was founded back in the 90s by Veronica O'Leary after her own cancer experience made her realise that while she'd received excellent medical care, there wasn't much of the time available by way of support for patients and their families to come to terms with the diagnosis and the recovery. It's now run by Veronica's son, Connor O'Leary, and I went to Bray in County Wicklow to meet him and find out more about the work that they do. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful yes. big old house, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So we moved in here about two years ago. So this is our forever home, a purple house. It's yeah, a one-stop no, shop for yeah. cancer patients yeah. and their families okay. um, to receive support while they're going through their, their experience of cancer. And tell me a little bit about what happens here. So we provide a whole range of uh, psychosocial and psycho-oncology support services. So that includes counselling and um, bereavement support. We have play therapy and art therapy for children. We have support groups, survivorship programmes. Um, and then we have a range of practical support services, including hospital transport, um, citizens' information, um, and wellness, a lot of wellness classes and programs so yoga and um, we would have swimming we would have physical activity and we have a cancer rehabilitation gym with a physiotherapist so it's a whole range of support services to help the person and their family members to rebuild their lives after um, the cancer diagnosis um, and we support families of and people of all ages you know from very young children up to to, to people at, um, at any stage in their lives. So it's, it's open to everyone. Now, so what's in here? You've really kept it as a house. Was that, was that important? Yes. It feels like we're in a very fancy house. Yes, yeah. So it was so important um, to keep that homely feel. So many people who have been affected by cancer, they spend a lot of time in hospital and clinical environments. Well, here at Purple House, it's different. It's at home away from home. And we want people to feel that they really can relax here, you know, that it's not clinical and that they can really regain their sense of self here while they're here. Um, And especially for children, Um, it can be very scary and daunting for for children of all ages to come into a a clinical environment where here it's a a friendly house. It's a home, you know, it's a, a home away from home and they can just relax, they can kick off their shoes here, they can they can sit on the couch or they can go into the sensory pod or they can play out in the therapy garden. And really, it's whatever they want to do. Um, we meet the person where they're at um, in their cancer journey um, and we tailor our services to suit their individual needs. We're here in the therapy room, which is the beautiful sitting room of the house. There's a chandelier, lovely seated area because talking is so important, isn't it? It is, you know, and really to to feel listened to, you know, and, you know, we don't have all the answers and we can't fix what's happening, you know, but it's, it's just to have 
a space you know a bit of time out during your your busy week you know that you can come in and just be let be heard just be listened to you know and yeah and for the family members as well of course there's the person going through the cancer but the partners the children the parents the siblings everybody goes on that journey and everyone has a different need you know so depending on your role in the family and depending on who the who the patient is in the family and they may be protecting you know they may not be able to really say how they feel you know because they want they they don't want to upset the family you know or their their siblings or their partners so that's where each family member can come into purple house as a unit if they wish but also they can come in separate you know and our team of counselors and psychotherapists and support workers will will meet that person where they're at you know and and um give them that support that they need at whatever stage yeah well show me more why the color purple why is it called purple house so um purple was it was our the color our branding let's say our t-shirts um were, were always purple and when our old name was bray cancer support center and we felt for children in particular that was a very heavy name you know and we wanted to make it friendly, you know, so children now say, I'm going to Purple House. You Lovely. know, they don't feel that that's weight on the word cancer, you know, so they just really feel that, yeah, that's a that's a safe space. That's a, a friendly space. I hear yeah. there's a group meeting downstairs. That's right. And that's our, our men's group. So our men's group comes in every Tuesday and they... Um, they are men who've all been affected by cancer and they come in and they talk about everything but cancer you know they they really just you know they talk if they want to talk about cancer they can but most of the time it's just knowing that they're with people who understand what's going on you know and um, they also are involved in our garden as well so when, when, when the weather's nice they they would go out and plant vegetables and you know tend to the garden so again it's just a a nice place for them to come and get some time out uh, during their week. We'll go, we can go down here to the therapy room. Wow, it's huge, yeah. isn't it? It is. It's a fantastic building. So we're down here now on the lower ground floor and I will show you our complimentary therapy room. So we have a team of complimentary therapists who provide their services here at Purple House. So that would include um, acupuncture, uh, reflexology, uh, oncology massage. Um, and these are all uh, medically approved um, therapies, but they help with the side effects of chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And they help maybe if someone's struggling with sleep and just feel relaxed, you know, and they're, they're great, you know, a great relaxation um, service here that we provide so we've a whole team of therapists who who all give their time here to purple house and we're really grateful for them you know for doing that and um, because it's another valuable valuable service um, and also in here we have um, we've caroline's breast care and that uh, caroline comes in and does mastectomy wear for for cancer patients um, and again it's done in a, a discreet environment um, we have Roach's Hair Loss Clinic as well who come in and do uh, wig fitting and and other hair care needs. And we also have a hairdresser who comes in. So if somebody needs to, to, to get prepared maybe for, for chemotherapy or, or post-chemotherapy or radiotherapy, they can 
they can get their physical needs met here at Purple House. Yeah, because it is there is so much more to it, and I see you give talks on the financial side of, of cancer outside of the medical treatment, which of course is amazing and, and very necessary. There are so many other elements to yeah. to come to terms with. Yeah, and these are all the practical things, you know, that really you don't hear about unless you you, you walk the shoes, you know, unless you have been affected. Um, and we also have a food cloud service, you know, that, that provides meals to, to families because a lot of our, our clients here are young parents who, who are, are maybe working or not working, but then also they have young families. So you can imagine going into hospital for your cancer treatment and then coming home and having to face going out then to do the shop. Um, so that's so by us providing you know a parcel of food, it means that's one less thing for them to worry about. You know yeah. they can they can focus on what they need to focus on. That's amazing. It's a lovely relaxing space in here, like a little health spa. Yes. And in here, I'll show you on one of our counselling. So counselling and psychotherapy is one of our big services here at Purple House. Um, we have a team of professionally accredited counsellors and psychotherapists who who work in all areas um, of counselling. So bereavement counselling, um, solution-focused counselling, some CBT, um, whatever uh, the person requires. So it's all person-centred services and wherever the person is at on their cancer journey. Um, and they can be the patient, the family member, a friend, um, whoever is affected so and we provide up to eight sessions uh, free of charge and then if they need more then we, we, we there's also the option for that so again it's just helping people to come to terms with what what is happening you know and allowing them to avail of affordable you know counseling you know because there are enough financial um drains on, on cancer patients you know when you have car parking medical bills um, child care you know, loss of income you know so our services help to alleviate some of those pressures to help the person to to regain a sense of themselves Conor O'Leary thank you very much for showing me around it's my pleasure Claire thank you for coming I really was blown away by the feeling in Purple House like I said many times it's like a home and the services that they run for people from the wellness offerings, the treatment, somewhere for kids to come, the therapy. It's just amazing that there's places like that exist for people who get the shockwave of cancer through their families to help them return to normal life and thrive. There is an event taking place in Paris Courthouse and Gardens in Wicklow on Sunday, the 25th of September. I am going to be hosting it and there are a huge list of big names in the wellness world from Jerry Hussey to Georgie Crawford taking part. The tickets are only €40 Euro and you can go to Purple House Cancer Support to find out more. We are partnering here at News Talk with Purple House Cancer And there are a couple of tickets up for grabs. If you'd like to win them, you can go to newstalk.com for more. Neve Malone is a stroke survivor who has lived with social anxiety disorder since she can remember. She developed her business idea last year while participating in a new pilot entrepreneur course for people with disabilities at TU Dublin. 
The idea has since evolved into a mental wellness startup called Alem Healing, which aims to reduce the anxiety of people with neurological conditions through an online platform. And Neve joins me on the line now. Hello, Neve. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. So social anxiety has always been a, a part of your life. Do you remember it as far back as being a child? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I remember basically being anxious about different things. I don't remember very much of it now because since I have my stroke, a lot of my memory from my childhood and my early teens and things is actually gone. But I do know that I did have it. Do you know what I mean? Like even when after I had the stroke, I could recognise that the symptoms were the same as before. Do you know what I mean? And what about situations like talking to me today? Have you learned workarounds or when there is a new situation, will you still kind of go to that, that place of anxiety first before bringing in tools you may have learned along the way? Um, it depends. I mean, it was handy yesterday because, as you know, Aidan rang me and kind of gave me an idea of what 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 you were actually going to talk about. So I kind of had something I've got notes written down to prepared kind of broad notes that I can actually say. But it is actually it was one of the things I was actually going to say because I used to give I used to work as a clinical nurse specialist in stroke before I had my stroke, which is kind of ironic. But um, basically, when I used to give talks to carers or to, to family members or to um, students or you know, whoever I was talking to, I was fine giving the talk, but it was afterwards if somebody asked a question, that's where the anxiety hit because I was afraid that I wouldn't know the answer or that I hadn't brought portrayed across what I wanted to say or they might say something different and then I'd be feel stupid on you know that sort of thing when I was giving these talks as I went along. I would prepare it so that I'd have it quite specific so they could only ask specific questions that related to it because, it was you know, I kind of kept it as as, as pinpointing as, as I could besides it having been broad because that was, I realised the fact if you made it more broad then people would ask loads of questions. So so there's ways around of, you know, basically that's how I managed to do it. And another thing I suppose would be when I used to go to like, I'd go to the pub or I'd go out for, for a meal, I'd, if I used to arrange to meet somebody outside because I hated going in on my own. I just, it, 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 just that that whole thing of wandering around the pen. What if something happened, or what if somebody looked at me, or whatever? And all that sort of is going around in your head all the time. So my coping strategy was always, I would meet somebody outside, and I wouldn't mention the fact that I had the social anxiety. I'd just say, you know, it's better to do it this way, and I prefer to do it this way. And should we could both go in together, then we won't look like Egypts and you know that sort of stuff. So that's that. That's the way I kind of got around that. And I suppose the other things I would have done was I basically worked my way up into a job that I didn't actually have to be dealing with anyone who was going to be a kind of negative, toxic, authoritative figure. Um, I suppose I visited my family when I wanted to go there and I kept, you know, kind of put myself first and, and, and focused on having a good supportive network of friends around me, um, which made a big difference that I could talk to and trust and talked about anything that I needed to. Tell me a little um, bit about the stroke then, Neve. When did that yeah. happen? Um, the stroke happened about nine years ago. I was 46 at the time and I was in work um, and I didn't feel great at around 12 o'clock. And basically it just everything became very overwhelming very quickly. And I was shouting at people on the ward, which I never do in your profession. Um, but I just knew there was something wasn't right. It's just I was really you know, that's irritating, really just irritable. I was really irritable and um, I just knew something wasn't right. So I, I went, I, I said, I have to go home. And lucky enough, I did because of the time I would have been off, I would have actually had my subarachnoid on the drive home. So I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. Somebody was out looking out for me at that stage. You know? And you were working so, as, a, as a nurse in this area, you said, with stroke patients. Yeah, with stroke patients. Yeah. So it was a 
it was an interesting transition from one I certainly understood from the patient's point of view afterwards, you know. So, um, and I would I gave a talk at something, and a lot of stroke survivors that basically I would have nursed, um, came to the talk, and they said, "Now you know what it's like." And I said, "I sure do." I said, "I know a different perspective on the whole thing of what you're going through now." So, um, yes, that was that was shocking in its own sense. And how long were you in recovery? Um, I was in for over a month and then I kind of slipped through the cracks because basically I think I I was in Beaumont and I think they thought that basically I'd be taken up by where I'd worked or somewhere that along the way, but I wasn't. So there was kind of no real kind of referral done as such. So I was at home and I I couldn't, my head was all over the place. I I literally, I mean, I, I lived, I've got hidden disabilities. So I probably looked better than what I was, but I really wasn't that great. And it took me months to even just come to terms with the fact that I'd actually had a stroke and to try and um, I couldn't associate with anything in my life before. It was like somebody put me into my house and said, there you go. This is where you're living now. And I'm going, what? I, I haven't a clue where I am, what this is. Uh, oh, is this, is this something I wear or something? It's just, or is this my life? I just couldn't remember anything to associate with my life. So it was very confusing and very disorientating. And um, around that time, that's when I needed the support from my family and friends, which kind of was lacking. And that's where my social anxiety disorder started to exasperate. And I suppose when you're missing some of the markers with your memory, like you said, that there's parts of your teens and your childhood that that, that is gone now. That's what helps us make sense of who we are now and and what we do, because we have that memory to rely on and and make sense of, of life. Mm, true. Yeah, I mean, I lost all my identity. I, I really didn't um, have a clue who I was. It took me years to, to be able to to go back and even just looking at things that I had in the house. And I was saying, oh, do I, do I read these books? I didn't, never couldn't associate with them at all or anything, you know, even my clothes that I put on, they felt comfortable, but they didn't associate them that they, they were belonged to me. So it took an awful long time to kind of find myself again. Literally, it, it took years, like it took years to do. Um, and trying to express and explain that across to people, they just didn't get it. They just was like, Richard, this is your house and you're, that's your whatever, what do you want about it and whatever. And I'm there. And it, because I couldn't remember and I couldn't express it across, it was just really frustrating. It was just really, really frustrating to, to have to deal with that situation. And was there a moment where you started to feel more like yourself again or was it too gradual to be just one point in time? It came on gradually, but as I noticed as I went along, I began to, what I was trying to do was trying to remember what I was like before. And I was trying to associate and read books and things that I liked before and saying, I must have really liked this. I love this book and whatever. So I stopped doing all of that. And I just started, you know, if I saw something I liked, I'd look at it. And if I saw something I didn't like, I didn't. And I didn't keep comparing to was this who I was before or was this who I wasn't. And I just started going like that. And basically the identity just came back that way. And then I was kind of like, yeah, look, look, I used to like this before, but now I like it now. That's great that I still, that I can enjoy it now and that I did have it that. And it it began to sort of bridge the gap between my life now and my memories years ago. And I actually remembered a lot more of my memories years ago once I kind of changed that way of thinking to that way of perspective. And when did the idea for Alem Healing come to you? After I had my stroke, my my friends that I, my network of friends that I had built up just weren't around because people kept saying to me, oh, they they found you know it was an awful shock to them as well, and I'm like, well, you know, I just need somebody to give me a bit of perspective on my life, but it just wasn't coming. I just it, it was like they'd never existed. They just 
left and that was it. So um, and it was I was always in confrontation situations because basically they, you know, in associations and in place, they'll say to you, you know, you need to contact your, your family and support because that's really all there is in the community. So I was there trying to contact my friends and my family and getting nothing back in return. So it, it, it was extremely frustrating. And it, it, I ended up having like, you know, arguments with them and them turning around and saying, well, why don't you go back to work? Because they couldn't understand because there's very little ed- education in the community. So we were kind of going around in circles and it made me feel worse about myself than, 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 than I had. And I felt like kind of like a waste of space and the kind of felt like the fact of what are you just too lazy to go back to work or is that the thing and I'm looking going, how could you possibly ever think that and you know it's it just it was going around in circles so I suppose when COVID happened then I realized the fact that there was more people like I'm in a lot of support groups and I felt literally it's constantly even now it's still coming up about five or six posts a week or exactly the same thing about family not understanding you know basically they're going through confrontational situations I feel like such a failure and I, I suppose I realized the fact that you know, I kind of with my my situation after a while, I said enough is enough. I can't do this. I'm I'm just kind of that way of thinking, and I started putting in coping strategies and trying different things in different ways myself to get myself out of these confrontational situations because I knew the fact that basically my friends weren't going to be there to support me anymore. So I had to work it out myself, and that's what I did. And I noticed the fact that it was triggers and links to people before they'd start. You know, all this confrontation sort of stuff, and by me changing my way of thinking to a more positive way of thinking and basically taking little steps back and realising the fact that actually, no, I didn't actually need them in my life and I didn't need that support. And eventually then I kind of just stopped talking to them and I just moved away and that was it. So it's that information I realised then that this would be extremely valuable to other people. And that's what I, that's what my, um, my my platform is about. It's been for people to be able to recognise the negative um, associations from family and friends um, and then to get themselves out of those confrontation situations and to be able to live and control their life as much as they possibly can. So how does it work when someone logs on to the platform? It's this educational tool. So basically, um, you d- it's like a video or it's like um, but the way I've started them is they're on animation form. So you click into the animation and basically it comes up. It's very simple, black and white, only about three minutes long. And then there's an ebook that goes with it so you can actually read along and, and what you're actually doing. And then at the end of it, um, you know, like at the end of each section, then there's kind of like a self-knowledge what, what did you pick up from this? What did you understand? So as they're going along, they can actually self-manage their own um, situations. It's very simple. What I've done is put up what it actually is. Then I've put up um, a coping strategy that I used and how I felt at that time. And then they write down how they felt and how they what the situation was for them. So then when the next time they see that situation, they'll recognise that, that that's part of the negative confrontation situation and that this is how you can actually work your way out. So they basically can then stick, start figuring out for themselves how what the triggers are and what the patterns are and, and how to actually self-manage th- th- themselves and control the situation. Yeah, and just a sort of a, a structure to help them assess their, their own life and their own situations with advice on what has worked for you yes. and for others. I'm going to read a piece from the website, if you don't mind, because I think it's very interesting. So it says, do you feel, do you feel trapped in your life, suffocated? Your family or friends or the public just don't understand you. You know you can manage with a little support as life is very different from before. You might feel very isolated and a burden. Mixing or socialising with anyone is hard to do with so much planning. People or family not understanding, trying to convey the reasons why and ending up in confrontational situations about why you can or cannot do something is so draining and exhausting. You just wish they would actually listen to you rather than what they think or perceive the situation to be. And 
The listening part of that, I just think, is so important for people to hear. We do tend to rush in and say, ah, you'll be grand, sure, just X, Y, Z. And of course, it is so well intentioned. But I think we need to talk more about meeting people where they're at, honour how they feel. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, we don't need to fix anything. We just need to listen. Exactly. That's what. That's exactly you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly. Sorry, my emotional. Sorry, sorry about this. Um, but yeah, that's exactly what what the situation is. Is that people just don't, as you said, they jump in and then they end up being exhausted and tired and saying that it's you know, it's your fault, my fault, or whatever. That basically that they're like this. But I'm like going, I I didn't want that in the first place. I just wanted you to come in and just sit and talk to me, and so that I could kind of get my head around something, and, and that's it. That's all. That's all we need a lot of the time. So you're you're exactly right on what you've actually said there. Just hold space for somebody and meet them where they're at. There is no fixing. There's just being. And like you said, exactly. when we talk about mental health, sometimes you can't see what's what's going on, and we don't have the same empathy just because somebody looks a certain way. But a an illness, a chronic condition, or a brain injury is no one's fault or not anywhere somebody necessarily chose to be, but it's where they're at. And let's just hold space. So let people take that from our our chat today. How does it feel now the platform is live and and it's out there and you're going to be making a difference in other people's lives with it? I know. I'm really, I cannot believe that it will actually launch. I Literally, I cannot believe that I will actually get to the stage and it will be out in GP practices and free to the end user. That's the that's the way I'm going with this. I'm started working with healthcare organisations here and in in UK. So that is, and it will go off then abroad. It's I can't believe it that it's finally that something that you know that I worked on so long and you know to get through myself and, and then to help others that will enable other people to be able to take control of their life and take their life back. So I think it's brilliant. And have you had feedback from users so far? I actually have. And I've actually had um, people working with me all the time with this. I've basically constantly sending information out to different people and saying, what do you think about this? What do you think? You know, and a lot. One thing they actually say, what they feel is positive. It's, it's something that I'm going to look at as well. It's the fact um, to be able to give feedback to GPs and things like that from bits of information. You know, they can have a summary every every few months as to how they're actually getting on. So they don't actually. So from end users, they feel it's brilliant because they don't have to go and explain themselves. You know, like that's that's a lot of what we have to always do start at the bottom and start working back and explaining every time you're going to see the GP what the latest thing is and what the story is it's, it's exhausting so with this it'll all be written on paper so they are on, in their technology um, and they won't have to be explaining and then it means the GP doesn't waste all that time going through all of that they can just go on and, and see what the next thing they need to do with this that, with that person so well, I think it's absolutely incredible. People can find out more at alemhealing.ie. That's A-I-L-I-M, Alem Healing. Neve Malone, thank you so much for coming on. I won't forget this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey, and Hugo De Silva, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.